0: So if you will remain standing, um, every week we go to the scriptures because it is there that the person and work of Jesus are most clearly revealed. And our sermon this week will be in Esther chapter 3. And our, our dear brother uh, Justin McGinn is here to open the word with us. For those of you who don't know the McGinn's, uh, he, his wife Carly, their sons Luca and Ephraim are here uh, just for a season visiting our Sojourn Houston family, and uh, they've been longtime missionaries in Italy. They're here for a season as they prepare to go back overseas to serve uh, in Trinity, Oxford, a church in Oxford, in the UK. And so we are grateful to have them, and uh, it's a, a wonderful blessing to share time with them and life with them here. Um, before uh, I read the scripture, let's let's pray together. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed that we may receive with joy what you say to us this morning. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord from Esther 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hammedatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur—that that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom." Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand, and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hammedatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the king of Susa was thrown into confusion. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth, and in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
1: How about now? Good morning. As Dodds introduced earlier, my name is Justin McGinn. My wife Carly is here with us. Our boys are in Sojourn Kids. It is such a privilege to be with you this morning. Many of you have walked next to our family these last six years as we have served in a church plant in northern Italy. And we feel your love and prayers and support now more than ever as we look to do this in what we have been doing in the UK, to equip and to train and to church plant for Europeans. Thank you. Thank you, Sojourn family. Let's pray. Holy Father, I ask you now to set me aside and I pray that your spirit would speak to us, would speak to us about the nature of authority in your kingdom. I pray we may respond to that as your body, Body of Christ, as we reach out to this broken world, I pray for this church that we truly listen to what your spirit might have to say to us in our hearts. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus, by your spirit. Amen. In January of 2015, the president of the Republic of Italy, Giorgio Napolitano, told the Italian Senate that he was ready to retire at the great age of 90, he's 96 now. So the Italian Senato a month later convened and they elected a new president. Sergio Mattarella, the Sicilian politician, lawyer, whose brother had been killed by the mafia, came to power as Italy's new president at the the young age of 75. And as a church, we were having a parish gathering much like your own on a Sunday evening and we were talking about this transition of power. And I looked at the church and I told them, I just don't understand how a country that laments daily the bureaucracy and the slow Italian status quo, why do you continue electing people that have one foot in the grave? Silence hit the room. All of our gathering turned and looked at me. One of the believers spoke up and said, Justin, in your country you may disrespect the president, but in our country you cannot talk about our president that way. You cannot disrespect the age of our leaders and authority. I was floored. So that night later on I looked up the country's etiquette on how to talk about leadership and authority and I found in their legislation, and I quote, offending the honor or prestige of the president of Italy is a criminal offense under Article 278 of the Italian Criminal Code, and the penalty of such a crime is up to five years of imprisonment. In the last few years, we have had two completely different presidents in this country. And I'd be willing to bet that there are those of us here this morning, whether in public or in private, have said something about the office of these two men that may not have been worthy of their authority. See, I believe that the story of Esther, I believe that our text this morning speaks to us in the same way that my cultural gaffe in Italy does. They speak into our desire for people in authority to have honor. But also that the seat or the office of that authority is shown respect. As we look at our text this morning, we need, we need some background to understand what's happening. Mordecai, along with Esther, along with the people of Israel, they are exiles. They are sojourners in a foreign land. They're in the empire of Persia. And the reason why they're there wasn't just because of the judgment upon them as a people. It was because Yahweh was preparing the world for a coming new covenant. A covenant that would be larger than Israel's covenant, that would go beyond the geographical limitations of a piece of land. A covenant that would go beyond their ethnic and social and temple system. And we see the spirit and the nature of this new covenant in the prophet Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 7, but specifically verse 7. Yahweh is speaking to his people through the prophet, and he says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find yours. Many of us know that text very well. Ten years ago, and perhaps even more recently, you planted your families here in the same spirit of that text. You planted your roots deep for the neighborhood, the heights. And so in the same way, Yahweh is calling Israel to plant roots deep so that when his covenant would arrive and his spirit would be poured out on Jerusalem, as we see in the the book of Acts, after the resurrection of his son, there would be already hundreds of synagogues across the Greek world ready to spread the good news, the Evangelion, the news of a new king and a new kingdom. So this call of Yahweh in the spirit of Jeremiah for Israel was to uphold honor in the midst of exile, to uphold honor and authority to those that they might have considered dishonorable. We see before our text this morning at the end of chapter 2, we see that Mordecai is giving an an amazing opportunity, an opportunity to save the king's life. Specifically in chapter 2, verses 19 through 23, we see that Mordecai warns the king and the king's life is saved. This is surely an ending scene that would see this man rewarded. He would rise in authority. But at the beginning of our text this morning in chapter 3, He doesn't rise in authority. The good guy isn't repaid his due. What's supposed to be justice doesn't happen. Look at the text with me. Verses 1 and 2. Instead, the narrator tells us that a man named Haman is given a throne, is given power, is given authority. But this man Haman is not just any man. He is... Haman the Agagite. An Agagite would have been a direct descendant to Israel's sworn enemy, the Amalekites, a people that were supposed to be judged by Israel and Samuel. Saul didn't do it, so now their remnant remains. So as an ethnic Israelite, this cannot happen. Israel's arch enemy, the enemy of God's people, is now in a position of authority, Now, if you look at the text, I don't think that Haman wants Mordecai to worship him as God. I think that what's happening here is that Mordecai is being asked to pay respects and honor Haman as one government official to another. We see this, that that Mordecai is always at the king's gate, something which is representative of the king's supreme court. Mordecai is someone in authority, And I know it's hard for us to understand the injustice of what is happening here. It's hard for us. Our context, we're Western, thousands of years have gone by. But for Mordecai, this would have been impossible to do. And yet, we see in the history of God's people something that they could do. Something that was actually quite possible for them to do. We see this in the person of Daniel, the Israelite, who bows before foreign authority. We see this in the Hebrew Joseph, who bows before the authority of Pharaoh, knowing that God has put foreign authority there to protect them for a greater scope in mind, even if that scope was something they could not understand. But if we look at Mordecai's perspective this morning, this move, this decision by the king, was completely unacceptable. And I believe that there are those of us who may be living in the same struggle that Mordecai faced. And that's because our world and our culture in this day and time has a really hard time when people in authority are not worthy of our honor. An example, there are those of us Here, perhaps, many people as we know in our country who took issue with the seat of the highest held position of our country, the highest held position of honor seemingly held by an unbridled, proud, sexist bigot for four years. Other people take issue now with that same seat being held by what seems to be an old, frail, mentally waning puppet Some of us may not take issue with the person in authority. Maybe we take issue with the authority that our government exercises. How do we feel when we see that vaccines are mandated? How are our jobs affected when there are economic restrictions? How are our families affected when we have school closures? How are our budgets affected when we see health surcharges? All of this in the spirit of protecting life, which is what we want. We want to protect life. We want to protect our neighbor. But our government does all of this in the same nature that they put laws and legislation that explicitly promote the killing of the unborn. How do we respond? How do we respond when those in authority around us do not do the job We think they should. Some of us perhaps may have been let down by authority closer to home. Maybe we've had friends, mentors, parish leaders, and church elders that have let us down. We may start to think, we may start to understand what Mordecai may have faced in his response, even though we know his response is someone who is not trusting in Yahweh's plan. How does his response affect others around him? Look at verses five and six. In verses five and six, we see that his response infuriates the man Haman, so much so that Haman doesn't seek to destroy just Mordecai. No, he wants to exterminate all of God's people. So as a result of Haman's actions, as a result of his response, he almost gets his people wiped out. Just let those consequences sit for a moment. What he thought was best, what he thought was right, almost affected his entire nation. In the same way, how does our response to authority affect those around us? This is something we must think about, because right now in this day and age, the present spirit of our culture is, my thoughts are my own. Therefore, I can write and say and post and blog whatever I'm thinking when we witness injustice and we're tempted not to tolerate it, to cancel it, to call it out, are we thinking about ourselves? Are we thinking about how our response affects those around us? Because I wonder what would have happened if Mordecai would have honored those in authority over him. And that question, by no means takes away from the horrid atrocity of the evil man Haman. It does not take away from his response. But what would have happened if Mordecai would have respected what seemed to him unjust authority? The text is showing us, church family, that Mordecai's response should be interpreted as unfaithful rebellion unfaithful rebellion to God's lawful created order and kingdom, even if God's way seemed unjust to an ethnic Israelite who had something against an ethnic Agagite. But in this story of Esther, just as we see in the the greater story of God's redemptive plan, it will take God doing good with bad to rescue his people. He will have to work with the bad in order to achieve good for his people. Last week we saw that this story in Esther as a garden story very much represents another garden story. It replays a lot of the same themes and echoes that we see in the book of Genesis. Today we see, as we saw in chapters 1 and 2, as things are going well for God's people with the rise of authority with Esther... Just like in another garden story, a serpent enters the scene. The serpent today is Haman. He enters the scene as, God's, as the enemy of God's people. If we go and look at verses 7 through 15, we see that Haman deceives a king with an incomplete truth. And he bribes him, just as we see in the serpent doing in another garden story, deceiving a couple who were meant to rule. In the same way, Adam, who represents all humanity in Genesis, instead of listening to Yahweh's way, instead of waiting on that authority, he tries to seize it with his wife prematurely. And what incurs is not physical death as we see here in the story of Esther. It's something much worse. Spiritual death with God. Look with me at the news of God's people, the news of their imminent death. Chapter four, verse one. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and a bitter cry. Verse three. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and in ashes. What we're witnessing here, church family, we see the people of God in this text, just as we as God's people from the beginning have had an edict of death which hangs over us, from which we cannot deliver ourselves. Mordecai may have failed to honor Haman, but we as God's people fail to honor God. Mordecai in the text fails to honor Haman for ethnic or tribal reasons, but our struggle goes much deeper. We fail to honor God. We try to honor ourselves, and that honor eclipses any desire to honor our king. The scriptures tell us that we stand in need of a rescue just like the people of God in this text. But our rescue must be greater than the bookends of this story. Church family, thanks be to God, our rescue came. This is something that we get to take joy in each and every Sunday, each and every Lord's Day. Our rescue came, and it came at a cost. It came at a cost greater than the bribe that this king accepts from Haman. And this is a rescue that we could never criticize or call out or cancel, but only honor and respect forever. And this is because in the history of humanity, there has been no one more grievously sinned against than the man Jesus no one in the history of humanity worthy of more honor than this man. And yet he was the only person in the history of our world that was shown so much dishonor, more than anyone else ever. And so in the strangest paradox, the cross acts as a sign of the greatest injustice. And yet it's the only way you and I are given true justice. If anyone had a right to respond like Mordecai, to get angry, to be vengeful, it would be Jesus. And yet the Apostle Peter tells us that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. On that cross, as one in authority, Jesus could have responded as Haman, lashing out, responding as Haman responds. Instead, Jesus, he leaves his enemies in the hands of God. He leaves vengeance to his father and he prays for them. We see this in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is not what our culture tells us to do. Our culture tells us to get rid of all injustice. And we've seen this, haven't we? The past several years we've seen it with people and figures like Harvey Weinstein. We've seen it with violent police officers who take life from positions of authority. We see this from celebrity pastors abusing their own authority. We are a world that is more geared towards trauma. We're geared towards social trauma. We're geared towards political unrest. And we have been divided in class and among our race. And we are told daily if you do not cancel it, if you do not pull it, point it out, if you do not try to do something about it, you are part of the problem. You are snake like. Some people even use the word injustice and it's morphed and it's transformed into something else. It's not, it's not what it used to mean. It now means anything that might offend me. And yet when we look in the story of Esther, church family, the book of Esther would say to us that injustice is necessary in God's plan for our transformation. Transformation. I know that sits heavy with some of us this morning. Injustice is necessary for the way that you and I are transformed into the likeness of God. But hear me out. We see the same view of injustice by Jesus as he's looking down from the cross. Picture that image with me right now. He's looking down from the cross as the Son of God, and he's looking down at the crowds, looking up at him. And he's looking down at the shame and the dishonor. But he doesn't respond as the crowds want him to. He doesn't call them out for the greatest act of injustice put upon the Son of God. I think the reason why he doesn't do that is that he understood That God's way for our transformation to change the injustice in us and to bring us true justice requires showing us and modeling for us how it looks to submit to God's justice in His kingdom. God is seemingly absent at the foot of the cross. Just as we feel when we look at the story of Esther, he's not mentioned. He seems to be absent. Perhaps as some of us feel this morning in our daily lives, he seems to be absent. And yet this is the same God who is with us this morning, who lays himself low as Mordecai, who cries out at his own inevitable death as Mordecai, and yet who rises greater than Mordecai. He is our God and King. He is the Son who, through facing dishonor, enables us to have eternal honor. But what does this transformation look like? How does this kingdom of justice change us, change our marriages and our families and our parishes, change our social structures and our our workplaces. We see a little bit of the nature of what Yahweh wants for his people in the Old Testament. Isaiah 51, 4, he says, I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 2, as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. I think, church family, the way in which God will give this gift of justice to the nations, not just our own, is through the humble submission of his church and his bride to his kingdom. To his kingdom and the nature of that kingdom. What does this look like for Sojourn Heights? What does this look like for for us It means that we spend the rest of this year with people who will not think like us, with people who will make decisions that we think they shouldn't make. And we will live with people who have different views of authority and respect and justice. But if we truly believe, church, that we belong to a kingdom, that we have a king, and that he is living over our lives by his lordship, through the peace of his gospel, and that we are citizens that belong to that kingdom. We might not make so much of our individual freedoms when seeking justice, but we might look to what it looks like in the nature of our kingdom to submit to God's lordship. Because in his kingdom, our thoughts are not our own. What we say and what we write, how we respond, does have an impact. How we spend our money, how we live morally, how we respond emotionally, does influence the politic of this church family. In this spirit, Paul speaks to the church in Corinth, talking about the unity of the body 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 24 through 26 Paul says, but God so composed the body, that is the church, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together what this means i think is that we might table our first thought and our first reaction to speak out and instead reflect on how we might pray and serve and encourage one another to bear with one another to listen to each other so that the parishes in our neighborhoods and our city might see that our opinions and our judgments and our convictions don't make up a church of me. But we as one body, as one family, united by the Spirit of God, brought together by the bond of peace, might bear and live in the tension of each other's views so that this city might know the justice of God in Jesus Christ. This is what covenant membership means. This is what it means to be a covenant with other people. It's what it means to live in covenant with other people. Even when we don't feel like things are going our way. Now I want you to hear me now. What I've said up until now, what I'm not saying is that we should live in a way that just looks like unquestioning obedience. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that we shouldn't point out sin I'm not saying that we should just try to spin things and not be honest or not call things out when we see them as they are. I'm not saying that we should hide problems and push them away and act as if they're not there. I'm not saying that. What I'm trying to say is that In all that we say and do, in all that we are are, as it pertains to authority in this church, may it be done in the same nature and in the same spirit as our kingdom. May it be done with honor and dignity and respect. But what does this look like for how we respond outside of these walls? What does this look like? How does this kingdom transform us in the way that we respond to political authority? Listen to Titus with me. Titus 3, 1 through 2. Remind the church, to Titus, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. In the same spirit that this letter was written, I I really believe that we are put here in places, in Houston, in the Heights, to intercede for our leaders, to intercede on behalf of God's people for our political leaders. We are called to pray for them as we just did. We're called to thank the Lord for them. We are called to ask the Lord to change their hearts, And this is why we pray for our president. This is why we pray for our congresspeople and our senators. And this is why we seek the Lord on their behalf, even though we don't have the same fiscal convictions as they do. And this is because when they look to us and they see the respect that reflects God's kingdom, they will see their best citizens in us. As we close, maybe there are a few of us here this morning who feel as an Esther that God is nowhere to be found. We're tempted to believe that the narrative of our story and our lives right now is defined by how our hearts are doing, how we're feeling, and what others think about us. Perhaps we've been the victims of injustice, And we have waited for God to make things right. Maybe we see people abusing authority and we want to respond. Maybe abuses of authority have led us to have friendships that have been destroyed. Distance now between those who actually used to be close to us. And we want God to make it right. How do we respond when all of our faith and trust and love is put, are put into people or structures or organizations that let us down? Look with me at the prophet Habakkuk. When things are not going Habakkuk's way, this is how he responds. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines... The produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. For many of you, your lives feel like this text right now in many different ways. But when we look to the scriptures, I want us to remember this. When we look to the scriptures, most of the words that are related to the praise of God come from people who have been crushed by the weight of injustice, that have been crushed by the weight of treachery and slander and division and hurt. May we, like them, rejoice in God when the things around us aren't going the way they think they should. May we pray and desire, like Habakkuk, to have joy in God. I desire and pray that for this church family. I pray that we we can see how God's kingdom has been advancing. If you look back on the last 2,000 years of the history of Christendom, kings and princes will come and go. Governments will change. Nations will change. Political parties will change. But yet one thing remains the same. One thing remains steadfast, and it's this. We all are called to live faithfully through it all because we are citizens of a kingdom. Faithfully. How does that faith look? What does that faith look like? I think of When I think of faith, and many of us may think this way, but we always equate faith with being bold, taking risk, putting everything on the line. Maybe this is something that Mordecai faced and felt. I'm going to have faith. But Jesus gives us an idea of faith that I think many of us miss. He shows us an angle of what True faith looks like in the kingdom of God. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, verses 7 through 10. We know the story well. A centurion, a Roman pagan centurion, comes to the Lord and he says, I have a servant and I need you to heal him. And in the text, Jesus says, Okay, I'll come and I'll heal him. And the centurion responds, No, 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 no. Just say the words. Just say the words. Perplexing. Why would he say that? What does the centurion know that I don't know? I think he says that to Jesus because he understands as a soldier what submission and obedience and authority look like. That is, if Jesus Christ is truly the king of this universe and he reigns in both heaven and earth, then his words would be able to have control, not just over the sick or the bodies, but over the words themselves. And what's strange about what we see in Jesus' response is that he is surrounded by Jews, the people of God, that have all of the secrets of God, all the beautiful history and the typology and the laws. And Jesus tells, tells this pagan Roman in front of the Jews, this is the greatest faith in all of Israel. Sojourn Heights, may we also have this same faith, a faith that trusts in the authority of God's kingdom advancing and transforming the cosmos, a faith that wields power and glory through the humble dining room tables of our parishes and our families, through the humble meal with our King once a week as we promote the peace of Christ's true justice to his broken world. Let's pray. Father, may your kingdom come as it is in heaven. May it also come on earth in that same way. May we look to Jesus, Holy Father. May we look to the model of what true justice looks like. And may we submit to that model in the daily lives of our families and our, our hearts and our existences. May we, as parishes, as your people, as your body congregated together, may we learn to live in the tension of that struggle. Bringing justice in the midst of injustice but we do it in the way of Jesus. We pray that you would come now. We pray that our hearts might celebrate and be gladdened by eating a meal with you, Holy Father, and that we might be one with you as you bring your justice on this land, as you bring your justice on this church. We pray this in the name of Jesus, through his spirit, amen.